Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Some of these communities only have one kind of hotspot or Wi-Fi, so people don't feel comfortable to have their telehealth consultations out in the open in front of their neighbours. We hear about the progress of the task force working to close the digital divide for First Nations communities by 2026. Also... We now know that we have some of the highest concentrations in the world in these critically endangered dolphins, but what we don't know is where the concentrations and where these compounds are coming from. Critically endangered Australian dolphins found to have the highest levels of forever chemicals in the world. And later today... People throughout Australia have been saying, in addition to all those kind of things, the student unit, the research support and so on, there really needs to be structures led by Indigenous academics. QUT will establish Australia's first tertiary faculty of Indigenous knowledge and cultures in 2024. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, protests continue across Australia as thousands gather to take a stand against the Israel-Hamas war, with some going to great lengths to amplify their calls for immediate ceasefire. It's been 18 days since Gazan-born nurse Riyad Aladasi began a hunger strike, calling on the federal government to play a more active role in demanding for ceasefire. Last Friday, National Radio News reporter Charlie Willis spoke to Mr Aladasi in Port Melbourne, where protesters had been camping out to block what they believed were armed shipments to Israel. Well, the public are all in support of, of what I'm doing. Of course, there is worries from my family, as you would expect, for my life and the risk I'm taking. And, and uh, yeah, people hear the message. Unfortunately, the politicians don't. Can you please paint a picture of the protest scene right now for just our listeners, please? Yeah, so for now we have a camp here uh, at WebDoc and uh, we have some supporters who come and go to support me. Some stay overnight, some go home and then come back the next day. Uh, I've got uh, a group of fantastic people from the LGBT community who have been supporting the cause and staying with me uh, all the way through and also other ethnicities and uh, faiths and uh, including uh, Jewish people. So that's the community I'm surrounded by. Why are you holding it at the port of Melbourne? The reason is it's you know, a symbolic spot. That's where uh, the port is and for the people to actually do something so that the government would listen is to block ports, block weapon manufacturers, uh, anyone that has to do with weapons. It's a way of showing the people what needs to be done is if we want to get the governments to, to listen to and hear the messages of the people because unfortunately they have been ignoring the rallies, they have been ignoring hundreds of thousands of people who have been calling for the government to take a stand towards the Palestinian people and towards their fair struggle for freedom. Uh, unfortunately the government has taken the opposite role which is supporting the occupation and ignoring everyone. And according to the international law, which apparently Israel is above and the Americans are above, is that the occupation has no right to defend itself. And unfortunately, our prime minister keeps repeating the same stupid words, which have no legal, in terms of international law, it has no legal stance. 
On the other hand, according to the Geneva Convention that Australia has signed up on, and many other countries, including the U.S., any occupied people have the right to resist the, to resist the occupation by all means possible, including firearms. But unfortunately, all these uh, so-called free countries and, and free, who call for democracy and freedom are doing the opposite. I don't know what stake they have in this and why, why they're doing this. That question should be asked to them, and that, was, that is one of the questions I will be asking Mr. Prime Minister. The other thing is that, <clears throat> the other thing is that if there is a government, the government should, should look after all the people, not just a certain group of people. Why have protesters been blocking ships loading at the dock? Well, there is this Israeli-related uh, Zen company that has declared that they will give priority to Israel in terms of cargoes and, and all of these things. And also, the Australian government has strong military and economic relationships with, with Israel. So for Mr. Albo, if you really, as he said in the parliament, if you really care about the Palestinian lives, what exactly are you doing to, to protect the Palestinian lives? Have you cut the, the shipments? Have you cut the weapon supply? To the Israelis, have you been active on the world stage to say this has to stop and we need to work some work a solution that would be long-lasting for the freedom of the Palestinians? No, no, he's a hypocrite. That's called hypocrisy. And none of the so-called parliamentarians whom we elected to represent all the people stood stood up to say to him, this has to stop. So the claims that you've just said of weapons exports to Israel, do you have any evidence that they're being shipped from Melbourne? It's not just Melbourne. The government is using its military post to do it. We have confirmed information of that. And, and you can, as a journalist, you do your own research and you will find out that, that what I'm saying is true. And also they have very strong relationships and they're not shy to declare it with the Elbit company which has to do with, with the, I think they do communication stuff, military communication, and also some weapons. I'm not fully aware of what they exactly do, and there has been protests at the Elbit offices around Australia. Um, so the Israeli shipping company, Zim, have said that they don't ship weapons to Israel, or they do ship they to can Israel? Say, they can say whatever they want, but if, if you say we are shipping and giving priority to ship cargo, all kinds of cargo to Israel, then that's a good enough reason. And the other thing, the Israelis have decided to cut water, food, electricity. They have been attacking hospitals, health care, paramedics, and then they occupy the hospitals. Gazan-born nurse and protester Riyad Aladasi there, speaking with National Radio News' Charlie Willis. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. The digital divide in First Nations communities continues to be cause for concern, despite the federal government's Target 17 commitment to close the gap by 2026. The First Nations Digital Advisory Group was established to address the issue and is working with a variety of different organisations and agencies, as well as the Federal Ministry of Communications. Last week, the task force shared its progress with the First Nations Media Converge. The WISE contributor, Martin Davies, has the story. The digital divide is real. 
having the right to have access to the digital world and its, its affordability as well. Being part of the digital world is a human right these days. More and more government services, more and more industry services are going online. Even to get your director ID, you've got to go online. You've got the MyGov, all of those types of services, and you've got to be able to have access to it to be able to get your services. That's the task force's figurehead. I'm Dot West. I'm a Noongar woman from the southwest of Western Australia. I'm the chair of the First Nations Digital Inclusion Advisory Group to Minister Rowland. Australia's national broadband network, NBN, has been included in the advisory group. Its general manager for regional and remote communities is Sam DeMarco, who says there have been plenty of learnings. The learning for us when we put broadband into these communities is people come off a very low base of digital literacy. And so front of mind for us is that um, when you're exposed to fast broadband for the first time uh, and sites and, and uh, applications that go with that is that people are protected. So protected from themselves, but also have the wherefore to understand how they can get the most out of the internet for the uh, benefit of all, all good. And uh, learning very early, uh, we would roll our team into community and run them through digital literacy programs and you know, impart, impart on them the skills and knowledge they need to, to be safe online. The northeast of Queensland is home to some of the most remote communities. Black Star Radio broadcasts across the region and their community engagement officer, Molly Hill, says the digital divide needs to close so that First Nations people feel safer. Some of these communities only have one kind of hotspot or Wi-Fi, so people don't feel comfortable to have their telehealth consultations out in the open in front of their neighbours, which is completely understandable. And also concerns around device sharing. That's a big concern with things like domestic violence, where women are not having their own device or their own means of communicating with outside help. Everyone thinks you're weird. Black Star Radio has also gone into the community to create messaging for young people. I'd tell someone about it right away, like you, Dad. Yeah, and together we'd sort it out. Unfortunately, just like in your life at school and in the community, some people like to bully and hurt others. This can happen when they use technology as well, like saying bad things about you online or sending you messages that hurt you. Remember, no one deserves to be hurt online. It's not your fault and you can get help. Tell an adult what's going on and get help and support. They can also help you to block or report bullying content because being safe online is just as important as staying safe at home and in your community. For more information on how to stay safe online, visit esafety.gov.au. Funding for this project is provided through the eSafety Online Safety Grants Program, an Australian government initiative. Messaging actually came from the communities, so they were consulted. It's a big concern that a lot of the government messaging, no matter what it's about, is whitefella kind of point of view. And um, a lot of the time things get lost in translation. And not leaving the message as coming from the whitefella has been part of NBN strategy, as they aim to work with Indigenous experts to offer advice within community. An Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander appointed from community, a paid resource available whenever the community has a question around digital uh, capability. Uh, so they can get online right in the moment and be safe. They don't grow on trees and uh, yeah, most certainly. And look, we've, we've been running this as a pilot program in four communities, one in Queensland, two in South Australia and one in WA. And the idea is that we're going to scale that program over time. Despite all the hard work underway, there's still a long way to go to meet the deadline of 2026. So. Can it be achieved? Auntie Dot West again.
I think in terms of the target 2026, I think it's very ambitious, but I've also sat down with the, with the telcos. We had a workshop with them in July and I talked about how this is a social, cultural, economical responsibility, like to our nation to be able to get digital, digitally connected. We can't always rely upon the economic imperative to get it done. We have to do it as citizens of this country. And they made the commitment to work with us to ensure that it does get done. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio, and to the other side of the country to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. Queensland University of Technology has announced the establishment of a Faculty of Indigenous Knowledge and Cultures, the first of its kind in Australia. Set to launch in 2024, the new faculty aims to expand current Indigenous Australian research, education and engagement via new initiatives and supplementary programs across multiple university disciplines. The Wire's Tony Pankaluik spoke with QUT Vice-Chancellor Margaret Scheel about the upcoming faculty and what it will bring for future students. What will this new faculty offer and teach Indigenous students? So it'll add into our existing programs and student activities, which are currently spread across each of the faculties, you know, so there's people in health, people in business, law and so on. And what the new faculty will do was help develop programs to supplement those. So, you know, Indigenous knowledge is in health or and work with the people in health and also develop new programs, but it will also work with the community and be a place where practitioners, people who are working in the community can come in and participate in the teaching and the design of the program. So we, we see it as adding to what we're doing and rather than taking away from our existing programs. And so will all the teachers that are helping out, will they all be Indigenous or will it just be maybe non-Indigenous people, but they've got a lot of knowledge in working with different students across the board? So the faculty will also teach non-Indigenous students, but it'll be Indigenous-led, so the dean and many of the positions will be identified. And then there may be others who are contributing to that, either within the faculty or through joint appointments with other parts of the university. But it'll be very much Indigenous leadership and supported by our Ujuri unit, which supports our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students already, and also Kurumba Institute, which is the research home. So Margaret, who proposed this idea when did this concept come about? Like how long has it been sort of brewing in the background for it to be coming to fruition? Yeah, so we've put all the other pieces in place in the lead up to this. So the Kurumba, which is the research arm led by Chelsea Watergo. We've had Ujuru for many years supporting our students. We've got an Indigenous strategy led by Deputy Vice-Chancellor Angela Barney-Leach. We've got our campus to country strategy. We've had our elders in residence. So we've built up all the things that you would need to offer, have a new faculty. And this will be the first in Australia. And then a number of people throughout Australia have been saying, in addition to all those kind of things, the student 
unit, the research support and so on. There really needs to be structures led by Indigenous academics or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander academics. And we've sort of been bouncing that around. And it was actually the idea of our senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor who said, we've been doing all this work. Is there something more we could do that would be bigger? And that's where it came from. You know how, like you say, it's Australia first and something like this hasn't really been implemented in other university institutions um, I was also want to know, like, did um, was there by any chance, like, say, internationally, like maybe you saw in the U.S. or like any other, like, First Nations, do they have something similar? Like, maybe you, you guys have drawn upon, or no, nah, not really. Just out of curiosity, yeah. I thought I'd throw it in yeah, there. Yeah, no, there's some in Canada, you know, because they have. Um, uh, so there's, I think, there's two or three in Canada, and then uh, the other place where there's been First Nations, um, a lot of work done has been in, actually in Norway with the uh, Sami people. people. I think it is, yeah. I got that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and they've got a, a, a Samu uh, University of Arts and Sciences or, or Science and Engineering. I forget which. Don't quote me on that. And so we, we're certainly looking at international models like that in our design. And it obviously, um, you know, there's a lot of work in academia in New Zealand as well. Yeah. So, um, Margaret, any final words and, um, like, um, have also add to that, like, final words, like, has other Australian institutions been consulting with QT, say, hey, guys, like, how do you do this? Or, like, yeah, just any final words I'll just throw in. Sure, yeah. I mean, obviously, um, uh, uh, different universities are doing different things. So UTS is um, developing an Indigenous college, a residential college. We have a small residential private. Um, pilot happening here so yeah we're we're very collaborative and um, talking to others about what they're doing and how we can complement that or, or be different that was qut vice chancellor margaret Scheel ending that report a different take on australian current affairs this is the wire on your community radio New research finds Australian dolphins have the world's highest concentration of environmental pollutants. The joint study done by RMIT, the Marine Mammal Foundation and Melbourne University found significant concentrations of PFAS chemicals, also known as forever chemicals, in Victoria's critically endangered Burrinun dolphin. I spoke to Chantelle Ford, lead author of the study and researcher at RMIT and the Marine Mammal Foundation, to learn more about PFAS chemicals and the implications of the study's findings. Yeah, so PFAS stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So it's essentially a fancy name for over 6,000 different compounds, man-made compounds, which we use in everyday products. So we use them in fire retardants, we use them in non-sticks, in our clothes, in our, uh, in our perfumes, cosmetics, carpets. The list is almost endless. So we looked at dolphins right across the Victorian coastline. So we looked at four different species. But the Baranan dolphins that live inshore, uh, they had the highest concentration. So these guys live in Port Phillip Bay and Gippsland Lakes and they don't really leave those areas. So they're feeding and living in these inshore waterways for their entire lives. And compared to, I guess, other dolphin species, does, does the species have anything to do with it or the geographical location? Does that have any impact on the levels of concentration? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So the Baranan dolphin was only described as a species in 2011. Before that, we didn't realise that it was its own separate species. So there definitely can be some species-specific uh, toxokinetics that are going on within the individual species that we might need to explore further. However, most of the time when it comes to these accumulating toxicants, especially when we're looking at globally significant concentrations, it's likely to be the area in which they're in. Mm-hmm. And so what what does this say about Australian waterways or what does this say about Australians' use of these forever chemicals? So Australia doesn't actually manufacture any of these forever chemicals, any PFAS. So everything that's come into the waterways is essentially from an imported purpose. So it's a little bit concerning considering that fact and it means that we are likely to be using these compounds a lot and or the management of how these are contained is is not necessarily what it needs to be. Your research is marine mammals, but does this bring up any cause for concern in terms of human health? Yeah, so the phrase I sort of started using a lot throughout all of this is the canary in the coal mine. Uh, So that's what the dolphins are sort of for these systems. Um, They live their entire lives in these ecosystems. They eat a lot more fish. And when it comes to the exposure to these chemicals, it's through diet predominantly. And so when the dolphins eat the fish, they're eating the entire animal, where we're just as humans just eating that that, uh, muscle tissue where these compounds don't actually accumulate as much in that tissue as they do in, say, the liver or the kidney. Not not necessarily as harmful, but obviously still not something that we're really designed to consume. Would that be correct? Yeah, so definitely something that we don't want to be consuming. However, the dolphins having these extreme concentrations doesn't necessarily mean that humans are. Uh, However, what it does mean is that those chemicals are within the environment and if we don't do something about it to reduce it, then obviously our exposure could increase as well. Are there any health implications, complications for the dolphins themselves? Like is this reducing lifespan or what kind of effects could this have on on the general kind of ecosystem of of the location if it is affecting the dolphin? Yes, we don't know the exact uh, impacts on this particular species. However, the concentrations that we found in the baranan dolphins are higher than what some other researchers found to have health implications such as lowered immune um, lowered immune ability. So when we talk about toxicant exposure, particularly in mammals, it's, it's often a contributing factor to a lot of health concerns. If this was kind of in the future to be found having adverse effects on on the dolphins, obviously they're already critically endangered. What kind of effects Mm -hmm. could that have on the larger food chain in the area? Yeah, it is possible that there are impacts on other organisms lower down the food chain. Uh, Like I said, the dolphins are at the top of the food chain there, so they're bioaccumulating and magnifying everything that's in that system. So they're going to have the highest concentrations. There is definitely an implication that there's a potential for these to have impacts further down, and it's something that I think needs to be one of the next steps Uh, coming out of this research is to investigate that. What can be done in the future to try and preserve this species or to try and reduce the levels of concentration across 
all all animals. So the number one thing coming out of this study, I would say, would be that we need to find out more. We now know that we have some of the highest concentrations in the world in these critically endangered dolphins, but what we don't know is where these concentrations and where these compounds are coming from. We need to know if these compounds are coming from uh, new sources, whether we're constantly putting them into the system, or whether most of this is coming from uh, legacy use or historical use from potentially when we didn't know this was such a problem. And of course, if it's the former, if, we, if we're still inputting a lot of these um, chemicals into the environment or we're getting leaching from, from historical uh, stores, then that's something that we need to find out so that we can hopefully effectively mitigate and manage that. That was RMIT and Marine Mammal Foundation researcher Chantel Ford there ending that report. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with great support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.